0: Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be.
1: Hey, besties. Welcome. This is the Ethics Experts. I'm Giovanni Gallo, and I am so excited today to invite you to hear the genius and the thoughts and the insights of Todd Churches from, uh, as the author of Visual Leadership. Todd, thanks so much for coming on the cast today.
0: Giovanni, thanks for having me. This was great. Um, so before we
1: jump into it, um, a lot of what we do on The Ethics Experts is tell the personal stories of, uh, our guests because, you know, we think that people matter a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of who we've been, uh, defines who we are and what, uh, impact we can have on the world. So I'd love to just start out by, before we get into the book, uh, tell us a little bit about how you became who you are today, maybe a bit of your personal story, and then we'll get into the book.
0: Sure, sure. So we're on the same page with I teach, uh, leadership in the human capital management master's program at NYU. And one of our themes is putting the humanity back into human resources. So I think we're on the same page with that. It's all about the people. Right. So, um, so my story, I could go back to the beginning. I grew up in Queens, New York and, um, and then Long Island, went to school up in upstate New York, Albany, Got my degree in, uh, in English literature. So, a lot of people think I'm a business major because I do management leadership consulting, but I actually majored in English literature with a concentration in Shakespeare and poetry. So, cool. um, my, my father, I remember him saying to me, What are you going to do? Be a poet and just sit around rhyming all day? It's like, How yeah. are you going to make a living doing that? So, what's interesting is I've woven a lot of my background in literature into the work that I do. So, we could talk more about that later. So, but my yeah. dream, I, talk, I just did my first TEDx talk last year. And in the TEDx talk, I talk about how my dream as a kid was to work in the TV industry. But actually, my first dream was to be Superman. And my backup plan was to be Batman. So those were my two career aspirations. Okay. Um, and But my fallback as I finally get a real job was to work in the entertainment industry in some capacity. So um, I was always a behind the scenes, back of the room kind of guy. So even though I talk loud and fast because I'm from New York, <laughs> I am an extreme bookworm introvert. And uh, um, so um, I moved out to LA and I had a number of temp jobs, just uh, entry-level jobs, just to learn the industry meet people, build my network. Um, I actually had a work a lot of part-time jobs. I was a bouncer in a nightclub for three years. Um, so that's a whole other side of my my background. Talking All about, right. Uh, you, you got to put someone, that cape on a little bit, huh? Yeah. You put the you know put a suit on and give someone a clipboard and a velvet rope. It gives them a lot of power that can easily <laughs> go to your head. Until I got uh, punched in the face throwing out a drunk guy one night and I uh, got my glasses broken and I kind of Uh-oh. put an, an end to my bouncing career. Okay. So, um, but I had a number of jobs in the TV industry, uh, entry-level uh, administrative jobs, working for Aaron Spelling Productions, working on script. I was in uh, a comedy at Disney I was in drama program development at CBS one of the common themes was and I talk about this in my book is having one horrible boss after another so uh, a few a few good ones one or two very good ones um, but mostly horrible I mean bad to horrible and that's kind of shaped uh, so my personal mission as a leadership consultant and why I do what I do is to help make the world a better place one leader at a time so that's why I do what I do and it's grounded in both Partially the Superman thing, right? Coming to the rescue of people and yeah. helping the uh, more vulnerable. But also just trying to, if I can help people be better managers and better leaders, they're going to be, you know, treat people, people better and that, that'll filter down. So, um, so I, worked awesome. in the theme, I worked in the theme park business as a project manager. I managed a theme park project in China, which I talk about in my TEDx talk. And then after 10 years in LA, it was just time to come back to New York. Um, and I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I ended up with a job for a uh, leading management training company, and they hired me to, even though I didn't have a background in this, to revamp their mini MBA program, so in the course of doing that, I dove headfirst into the world of management leadership, and because I, to do that, I had to start reading management leadership books, and I got hooked and addicted, so I shifted from literature and poetry to management and leadership and business books, and I started reading an average of one a week, and that habit, I got addicted, that's one good thing about having a compulsive personality is getting addicted on to good things like yeah as long books. as it's
1: a good thing right yeah, <laughs> sure.
0: so i average i, I would read one, anywhere from one to three or five a week my record was 10 i once read 10 business books in one week wow. um but i averaged one a week for 20 years from 1998 to 2018 so i've read over a thousand business books and those of you who are watching on video can see some of them behind me <laughs>
1: can't so, put have, them all in there right yeah
0: no no they're in boxes they're on shelves or all over the place so, yeah. but after re- reading so many books, people kept saying, when are you gonna write one? And that's what I did finally last year. So, uh, so that brings me up to back, getting back to New York and getting into management leadership development. And then I ended up with a job as head of leadership development for a Wall Street Financial Services FinTech company, got laid off there um, and started my own company in 2010 called Big Blue Gumball. And we do management leadership training, co- consulting and coaching. And I teach at NYU in Columbia. So that's my whole background. Speed, fast forward in a nutshell.
1: That's awesome, man. There's so much stuff there. Uh, and I do want to get into the book, but there's some stuff that you hit on that I think um, will kind of set some things up later. You, know, you talked about uh, poetry and Shakespeare and things like that and how people think that that might be irrelevant. But in your book, you talk about how reading fiction and getting, you know, getting some perspective on literature helps you kind of understand people and understand how to influence them. Um, And, you know, I think that you're really showing it in the arc of your career, how uh, that understanding really, you know, I mean, business is about people. It's all done by people and it's about impacting people's lives. Um, And, you know, a lot of that, a lot of what resonates about a book or a poem is just, you know, the humanity of it.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're each the lead character in our, in our own life story, right? So I do a yeah. lot of work around. In fact, the uh, workshop I was supposed to do in Denver a couple of months ago that was, got canceled because of the pandemic was on the art of storytelling for a, uh, an insurance company. And you think, all right, why would an insurance company uh, want to train people in the art of storytelling. And a lot of it has to do with, again, um, it's the stories that we tell. It's, it's, it's about influence, it's about, you know, how do you get people to fulfill their dreams? And, you know, a story could be a cautionary tale. Here's what could happen to you, right? Sure. A story could be a success story of here's how we triumph, right? So that's all stories. So stories have a beginning, middle, and end. Stories have villains, victims, and heroes, right? So everything we do, you're in the compliance business, ethics, right? There's a million stories you could tell. You could yeah. tell people do this or don't do this, but it's the story that gets people's buy-in and gets it to resonate with people. Stories are human, they're emotional, and they're memorable. So um, that's the power of storytelling in the world of business. So I bring my literature background into that, and that kind of shapes my the lens through which I see the world, which is a metaphor we'll talk a lot about when we talk about visual thinking.
1: Yeah, yeah, we got the lens going there. I love yeah. it. Um, yeah, and I think it's it's really great that you are – talking about this, um, you know, the humanity of this and how storytelling is relevant. Um because, you know, there's there there the results of all the things that we're doing ultimately impact a person. Yeah. Um, and I think it's interesting that you kind of started from, from literature and you know you talked about your career aspirations. Uh, sorry that you never got to become Batman, by the way. Uh, uh, maybe <laughs> still some time.
0: <laughs> well, someone said to me, one of my clients, because we were talking about that, he's a Superman, Instead, you don't have x-ray vision, but you have the power of visual thinking. So that's my, and super strength. I talk fast, so I have super speed when I'm talking. OK. And, and strength in, in character. Yeah. So he said, that's your Superman stuff. And Batman, he said, You're, you have a utility belt of coaching tools in your toolkit. So wow. I loved it. So I was like, that's the best of, and he said, you help save people and, and, and help them be successful. So uh, there's my Superman and Batman. And, and oh,
1: cool. That, you got them both. You that, know, maybe you never would have thought that. that but yeah, I think it's cool. You know, I think that a lot of people in our audience, ethics experts, people who lead compliance and integrity programs, um, they, you know, they have a similar story where they weren't six years old, kind of dressing up as a compliance officer for Halloween. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not sure what you would wear anyways. (laughs) We're all just people, right? But, um, you ended up in this career in HR leadership, or at least that's kind of part of the, what, what you're teaching now. Um, and you know, it really, uh, it's obvious to me that that came from the perspective and the values that, that you had and the things that you pursued earlier.
0: Yeah. It's always interesting to me. I'm always fascinated by how people ended up doing what they're doing. Like you just said, it's like, you know, you ask a kid what they want to be when they grow up. It's like, you know, Superman, a Batman, it's a fireman, it's a, woman. it's a uh, you know a doctor um people very few people like i want to go into corporate compliance i want to go into uh you know management and leadership consulting so it's like that's right. not so it's always interesting and, and i had a very secure this uh, you know we talk about career path if it's as if it's a stepping stone walk through the park yes. i say it's not a path it's a roller coaster of ups and downs <laughs> and twists and turns and, and exhilarating yeah, exhilarating highs and terrifying plummets, right? We've all had that. And, and where you end up, it's, uh, you know, you have to enjoy the ride along the way. Even the, the hard parts, like getting laid off. I've been fired three times. I've been laid okay. off a few times. So that's just all part of the, the journey, as we say.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I think uh, as HR and ethics and compliance leaders, we're dealing with those transitions all the time. People mm-hmm. coming in and we're doing background checks or people going out and we're doing exit interviews and things like that. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, uh, I want to jump into the book, but I just, I, I love that as you've made this journey and as you've connected this and now you're using your superpowers of vision and your tool belt, um, And uh, your your super strength, you're talking about making the world a better place. And, you know, we say here on our team that we're trying to make the world a better workplace because so many people spend so much of their life at work. um, And we as a society, um, as a country, as, you know, even just the ethics profession have not figured out yet how to make that the thriving place for people to bloom and really kind of express their gifts and grow that, you know, we believe that it should be. And, uh, you know, we talk about making the world a better workplace. So I love that you brought
0: that in. Yeah. What you're doing is so needed, especially in today's world. And so, you know, we always use the the term VUCA, V-U-C-A, you know, we live in a world that's volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. That's a Uh word that's the term that's been around for a while, but now we're living in a hyper VUCA world. That's term my coin because it's like magnified a hundred times Like right. between the pandemic and the social issues and now yeah. you know we're having hurricanes and there's the economic crisis it's like it's more complex than ever it's like how do you a big part of my work is now is like managing and leading in the covid and post-covid world it's like how do you manage when people are at, at home how do you manage the emotional component how do you keep people motivated and engaged how do you might not micro how do you manage and lead but not micromanage? and right. how often managers have a constant dilemma. How often do I check in with people over Zoom so they don't feel like I'm looking over their shoulder or babysitting or spying on them, right? So yeah. these are all issues and challenges that we need to deal with, the realities. Um, when we go back to work, uh, having you know, how do we keep people safe and yet get things done? So there's all of these things that people need help with, and that's part of uh, my focus right now.
1: That's awesome. Well, um, I appreciate you doing it, Todd. It's a service to the world. It's a service to, you know, I, I like these layers of the things that you're doing are a service to the leaders who are trying to do this stuff. And then through them, they're making an impact on hundreds or thousands of employees by doing that job better. So thanks yeah. for caring.
0: I do. I'm doing what I can. All right. <laughs>
1: Um, so, uh, if you want to give us an overview of the book, I imagine by a week or two from now, when we launch this based on how well this is going and how interested everyone is in it, it may need no introduction, um, and everyone's going to know about it. Uh, but you know, if you want to give us an intro and I'd love to hear, like, as you talk about this concept with leaders, what's one big, uh, kind of realization that people have after reading and learning about visual leadership?
0: Sure. Well, the idea behind visual leadership, I'm just going to hold it up visually so you can Uh see it, right? (laughs) So a couple of things. First of all, it's one word with a capital L. And the idea behind that is that you can't separate vision from leadership. Um, How you lead is a direct result of how you see the world, the lens through which you see the world. And that's formed by our life experiences, right? Our family, upbringing, culture. Everything that we do shapes our belief system, our core values, and our values influence, influence our behaviors, and that's how we lead. That's how we make management leadership decisions. The other aspect of this, or one other aspect of this, is we always, when you ask people, what's the first word that comes to mind? I asked this in my NYU and Columbia graduate classes. Um, what word comes to mind when you hear the word leader, leadership, or leading, and the word vision tends to be, if not the first, in the top three. So what does it mean to have a leadership vision? What does it mean to be, when you call someone a visionary leader, like uh, a Bill Gates or or a Elon Musk or a Steve Jobs right or Martin Luther King Jr. What does it mean? It's about having a picture in your mind's eye, and mind's eye was coined by Shakespeare in Hamlet when he saw okay. the ghost of his father right. So going back to my literature roots, uh-huh, right? it all ties together. Yeah, it really does. So it's like as a leader, you have a picture, a vision of a future that is different from and better than the current reality. So it's about how do you formulate that vision. But also, not just that, but how you communicate that vision in a compelling and engaging and inspiring way so that you can create followership and turn that vision into reality, right? So, there's two components. So, you can have an idea, but without realizing that idea in the real world, it just is is an idea, right? So, that's Mm -hmm. a big part of it. And… What's interesting too, just one of, and also the subtitle is leveraging the power of visual thinking in leadership and in life. So this is not just a book for managers; it's really for everyone. In fact, my mother read it, and she she was like, "Oh, I thought it was going to be a boring business book, and I loved every chapter of it. So it's really storytelling and the use of. uh, We'll talk about the four components in just a second. But really, in all aspects of our life, we need to lead, whether even if you're just leading your own life, right? Whether if you're a parent, if you're a student, if you're regardless of what you're doing, we all need to lead in order to succeed. So that's a little rhymes, so a little poetry there too, right? So exactly, you get <laughs> yeah, the visual and then maybe we're gonna do audio leadership next. Yeah, so we're packing it all in. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah we need to hit all the senses, right? So, but another thing about the eye, one is my company's called Big Blue Gumball. So originally I had a blue eye to keep consistency, but then I realized through feedback and insight that it's, it wasn't that the eye was blue, it, that, re- that represent anything, it just represented Big Blue Gumball, but we went with a rainbow eye, as you can see, yeah, which yeah. represents diversity, inclusion, belonging, equity in all its forms, Okay. different perspectives, innovation and creativity, so the rainbow represents the world of possibilities. So, two things, in addition to your vision as a leader, we need to flip, like I've been calling flipping the eye, we need to flip the eye around, look internally at ourselves, at our own belief systems, you know, we view the world in a certain way, but is that necessarily the right way or the best way? We need to look in the mirror and look internally. So that's one component. And the other is, can we see the world through the lens of others, right? Okay. Can we see the world through the, view, uh, the point of view of our employees, our customers, our vendors, whomever? Um, and that's a big part of it too, is being inclusive, being compassionate. You talk a lot on your website about you know, empathy, compassion, all of those themes, right? Yep. So flipping the eye enables us to be more compassionate and, more, and have more integrity and all of those things by looking at ourselves in terms of accountability and integrity, but also looking at the world through the eyes of others.
1: I love it, Todd. That's really such, it's such great insight. I love the flipping the eye analogy. We gotta understand ourselves. When we understand ourselves and how we see the world, we're gonna understand other people and how they see the world. And I think there's this cool thing that as you talk about this, we're bridging the gap that's this, you know, I think a lot of things in our society have become really transactional and it's all kind of external, but mm-hmm. part of that empathy is seeing past kind of that veneer or that outward expression of somebody else to what is their heart? What do they care about? And how can I make an impact on that? I love how you tie that all together into leadership. And I think it's something that, you know, people need to get the book and really kind of soak a lot of that in because it, uh, it can really transform the way that you look at your leadership from just kind of a effectiveness in getting things done to impact and, uh, you know, really making a difference in people's lives.
0: Yeah. One of the the concepts I was thinking about as I was preparing to talk to you today was, you know, a lot of times in my classes, when we talk about motivation, right? We talk about Maslow's hierarchy. We can talk about models in just a minute, a few minutes, but, you know, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a model, right? Uh So it's a framework. One of the things we talk about is difference between compliance and and cooperation commitment. Compliance has kind of a negative association sometimes because it feels like, what's the difference between doing something because you have to do it versus because you want to do it, right? So the challenge as a leader is to get the, Dale Carnegie, who wrote the classic book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, he said that the best way to get someone to do something is to get them to want to do something, right? So how do you get people to want to comply as opposed to feel like they have to comply, right? Yeah. So, and that's whether getting people to wear a seatbelt, a helmet, or in today's day and age, wearing a mask, right? How do you get their buy-in because they see the benefits of it. I would say people have two thought bubbles over their head at all times. It says WSIC and WIFM. Why should Uh I care? And what's in it for me? If they don't care and they don't see the benefit, they're not going to listen. And that's whether you're talking to one person, a group of people listening to this podcast or an audience of a hundred thousand, right? So that's one of our challenges is how do you get people to comply because it's the right thing to do. And Peter Drucker said, management is doing things right. Leadership is doing the right thing. So it's like, how do we get people to do the right thing for the right reasons, because they see it. And as a leader, that's one of your key jobs is influence and persuasion, but not manipulation, but motivation. How do you motivate people to comply? I'm sure you could speak forever about that. But that's, those are some of the thoughts I was going through in my mind as I was thinking about what you guys do so well.
1: Yeah, I appreciate um, I appreciate you tying that together, and you know the Carnegie quote is great. Obviously, that book has uh, stood the test of time because, again, like it's about people. It's not about yes. a time or a zeitgeist, but it's about humanity. Um, and I'm sure you're familiar. I, I don't s- I don't see it on your show, yeah. but I'm, I imagine you've heard of Simon Sinek sure. and uh, in his why. TED talk
0: with yeah. uh, that. Start with why in the golden circle.
1: Yeah, exactly. And uh, in uh, you know in his golden circle speech. I love that as he's talking about this, he makes a clear point that, you know, the people who showed up to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, March, they wanted to hear him. They wanted to be part of it, but they were, they were there for themselves because they cared about that outcome. And that's mm-hmm. what we as ethics experts need to appeal to is it's not just, you know, there's maybe some kind of very base level against that Maslow hierarchy of if you don't do what I say, then you're going to, you know, not have enough food to eat or something like that. Mm-hmm. But as we appeal to kind of some of those higher order needs and say, Hey, you know what? Doing the right thing. Is about taking care of your tribe. It's about you know the integrity that you have and the legacy that you lead. Um, and we can we can have people, again, like you said, have that cooperation rather than just that, you know, comply with this rule. Yeah, yeah. Um, as we move from just, you know, that kind of compliance 1.0 of kind of enforcement to the compliance 3.0 that's about humanity and impact and really being effective in making people's lives better.
0: Exactly. You can get people to do something based on force or co- coercion or deception or trickery, but one, it's not the right thing to do. Two, right. it's not sustainable. People see yes. through that. People aren't dumb. So that's the thing. It's like, how do you get them to buy in for the right reasons and one of the things we you know we mentioned storytelling but another thing that you just remind me of the importance of story listening as a leader uh-huh. right so it's not just telling your story but it's listening to other people's stories and that's how like how do you stephen covey in the seven habits taught one of his principles is, is create a win-win situation right yep. how do you get a win-win unless you know what it takes will take for the other person to feel like they've won right and we yep. get that through listening. And his principle number five is seek first to understand and then to be understood, right? Yeah. So how do you understand through listening, right? So we need to ask, we need to listen, you know, the whole two ears and one mouth thing, we need to, you know, listen twice as much as we speak. But that's the thing as a leader, it's important to listen to what people are saying. A lot of times leaders can be so detached or so focused on the big picture or in an ivory tower, sitting in a corner office, even if that office is in their own Palatial home, right? And right not necessarily an yeah. <laughs> office building these days, but right. But we need to listen—the word on the street, what are our customers saying? What are people? What are our employees thinking and feeling? So uh, I think that's a big part of the story listening, which is something I've been talking a lot about recently.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I think it's great, and I think it's that something that we, as ethics experts. Um, are continuing to get better at and need to get better at um, as we figure out, hey, how do we how do we listen to our employees? How do we listen to our culture and our internal brand and things like that to figure out how to do this better? A lot of times we know what the right thing is. We know what the policy is, but we find out that it's not working. Um, and we, we need to, you know, I think we're getting better at listening. Um, and I love that you brought up Covey. I think we can kind of do this all day. <laughs> um, but, you know, you talked earlier about uh, visual leadership, and I think it was Covey that's you have to something is created in your mind first before it's created in the world Um, so you know uh walk us through your uh kind of four uh like the four features of visual leadership and then maybe we can get into kind of how some people can uh apply this and and you know practically become a better leader that makes the world a better workplace
0: sure so the foundational saying from my book and then everything i do is how do you get people to see what you're saying right how do you get that idea out of your head and into someone else's so that they can understand it so First of all, why visuals? What is it about visuals? And I'm talking about both visual imagery and visual language, and we'll talk about both of them in a yeah. second. But you know, the thing about visuals, and without getting into all the brain science, there's a lot of people like John Medina who wrote the book Brain Rules, they talk a lot about how the brain science works. But just on the practical level, I have three words I talk about in my TED talk, attention, comprehension, and retention. When you use visual imagery or visual language, first, it captures people's attention. If I'm showing you something, you're looking at it, right? You're not looking at your phone, you're not looking elsewhere, you're not reading something. We're both, I'm showing something and you're looking, so you, I have your attention. Secondly, comprehension, if you're looking at something, you are going to understand it better because you're seeing it and it's now in your mind's eye. Thirdly, retention, you're going to remember it. So in terms of recall, memory, and future usage and application, um, you're more likely to use it. So. Research has shown there's two reasons. Again, the science is called the picture superiority effect. If you give people a list of words and a list of pictures and you ask them a few days later to recapture what you showed them, you're going to get like 80% more recall from the pictures than you are from the the words. The science shows that. So that's called the picture superiority effect. The second one is called dual coding theory, which is when you um, reach both sides of the brain, left brain and right brain. So if you have just text or just visuals, the visuals are going to win. But when you combine text and pictures, or even visual language, the dual coding, it gets encoded in both parts of the brain, metaphorically, not literally, because we know the brain is more complex than that. Sure. But you will remember it, you'll understand it, and you'll remember it. So if I—if you're coming to New York and you say, oh, how do I get to your apartment on the Upper East Side? And I say, well, you get off at Grand Station, Station, Central Station and you make a left, you make a right, you're not going to remember. If I send you a map, you look at it, and you're like, I got it. I pictured it. In, my... in fact, you could even probably throw the map away, and now you have that map in your mind's eye, and you could follow that mental map to get to my apartment. So yeah. you're welcome to do that anytime after the... Pandemic's over, but all
1: right. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to, huh? Maybe get some oysters in Grand Central.
0: Yeah, that'd be great. But that's just a brief example about attention, comprehension, retention, and why visual. So let me get into the four types of visual, uh, visual thinking that I talk about in the book, and visual thinking and visual communication. Because, like I said, having the visual, the vision, and is one thing; communicating it out there into the world, so other people can see it, is another. The four types are, and they come in pairs. The first one is using visual imagery. Very often using drawing. So it could be a picture, a PowerPoint slide, a picture from a magazine, or you could get up at a flip chart or a whiteboard or napkin sketch something out, right? That's, that's number one, using a picture. Number two is using a mental model or framework, a map. For exa- example, an organizational chart for a company showing the CEO, the C you know, well, suite, and the level below. That's a visual representation using a framework to illustrate who reports to who in the organization, right? So you can use a process diagram, a mind map, you could storyboard something. Those are all mental models. You mentioned Simon Sinek's Golden Circle, that's a model, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Blanchard's situational leadership, you know, anything that's in a matrix. And I did my first TED Talk was on the power of visual thinking. I did that last year. My second was supposed to be two months ago, but it got canceled because of the pandemic. Rescheduled for next year. All right. But the title is The Magic of Mental Models, How Thinking Inside the Box Will Help Us Be More Successful. So we're always talking about thinking outside the box, right? But life is messy and complex. If we can take the messiness, put it in a box, in a framework so that we could kind of dice and slice it, we'll see it more clearly see solutions that we may not have seen, then you think outside the box to think, all right, how can we implement or execute this? So that's the idea behind thinking inside the box in order so you can't think outside the box until you put the stuff in the box first, yeah. right? So that's the idea. And again, we use the clarity to here. it,
1: right? Exactly. And you know, it's you know, you can say there are two types of people in the world: the people on this podcast and the people not on this podcast, right, right. whatever it is. But it gives some clarity. And you say, okay, here's one way to look at it. And it's not everything has to be that way, but it kind of gives you a starting point, right? Yeah. And that's the you, that's the mental model version.
0: Yeah, you just reminded me of the the joke. There are two types of people in the world: those who put people into two categories, and those who don't. So it's just, <laughs> uh, there it yeah, is. Yeah. <laughs> So, so we just talked about the first two. So number one is visual imagery and or drawing. Number two is mental models and or frameworks. Third is the use of metaphor and analogy, comparing things that are unlike. So if I say, like you just said, close the gap, you know, there's not a physical gap, but there's a mental gap. Like for example, when I do 360s in organizations on, on executives, the category that, that people score themselves the highest in, that other people score them the lowest in, any guesses on what that is from your experience? Um, uh, for
1: executives, maybe, yes. um, I don't know, like, uh, understanding or reasonableness.
0: Very close listening, listening. Everyone thinks they're an amazing listener and then their people rate them very low. So I always say the biggest gap is between the ears because they think they're listening <laughs> and they're, and they're not. So, okay. um, so even though we're talking about visual thinking, there's also an auditory component as well. Sure. So, but using a, a metaphor like closing the gap or That's just the tip of the iceberg. Or you know, like, for example, an iceberg. When you first meet someone, you're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. That's your first impression. You have to dive into the water, dive beneath the surface, to see what else is down there, right? If someone's an overnight success, it's very rarely that it was overnight. You don't see this pain and suffering and struggle all those years. So the metaphor there is, what do we see versus what are we not seeing, right? So we could use that iceberg metaphor in a lot of different ways. So again, metaphor analogy simplifies complexity, Makes things relatable. One of the keys to metaphor is like I'm a big baseball fan, big Yankee and Met fan, right? So I use right. a lot of baseball analogies. However, a lot of my students at NYU are female, f- females in their 20s from China, right? Okay. So a young like a young woman from Beijing, a baseball analogy is not going to metaf- um, resonate with her as yeah. well as a one about dance or the arts or, or nature is universal, right? Sure. I could say, we're going to plant the seed for this idea. Let's see what grows. I'm going to go out on a limb here and let's see what bears fruit, what, what's the low hanging fruit. I sure. just used five different tree metaphors in just you know, a few seconds. Uh-huh. So we use metaphors more than we even realize it. But when we do that, we bring clarity and, uh, and, and we connect with people and make the invisible visible. So that's the metaphor category. And lastly, I mentioned already a storytelling. And if you could y- add humor to that, you get extra points because humor makes people feel good makes them smile and or makes them laugh. And it resonates with people. And when people are enjoying themselves, they're listening and they're learning. So those are my four categories. in, in you know, just in summary,
1: that's great. Yeah, I think those are great things. And, you know, um, obviously, there are a bunch of things, but you're bringing clarity to this, you obviously practice what you preach. And, uh, you know, things that fall into those categories are things that we can hold on to and say, hey, you know, I'm kind of, I'm trying to persuade somebody of this or I'm trying to get adoption of this program and you know I have the chart and the ROI calculation but how can I make this more compelling and we can run through those four categories like okay could I do, try some visuals are there any um you know are there any metaphors and there are some mental models and all of that
0: yeah um, so it's interesting. go ahead oh, I'm sorry go ahead no go ahead I'll, I'll jump in in a second but we, <laughs> we, we finish your thought um yeah I mean I think that
1: um You know, uh, if you talk to anybody on my team, you'll hear that I overuse analogies and metaphors, maybe even a similar or (laughs) two. But that mental model is really powerful. You talked about an org chart and something that, you know, we just onboarded um, a new employee this week. And as we do our day zero orientation, we talk about one of the first things that we did here at compliance line is we turned that org chart upside down Mm -hmm. and we felt like that was a powerful way to illustrate that we're servant leaders and we all serve up and I'm here to help the managers and the managers are here to help the frontline because we're all in this to make an impact for our clients and their workplaces and the service and the view and the honor needs to go in that direction. Um, So, you know, the org chart kind of tells your organization and also the way that you kind of orient these mental models can also, Communicate a lot.
0: Yeah. I love the idea of servant leadership and flipping the org chart because the first time I ever heard that, I was 24 years old. Um, I long story short, I when I moved to LA, I got on board the plane at JFK, flying out to LA, bags packed, say goodbye to my parents. My dream was to work in television. I'm walking through first class to get to my coach seat and all the way in the back. And who's blocking the aisle but Grant Tinker, who was the CEO of NBC at the time and the okay. husband of Mary Tyler Moore. Uh-huh. So I tell the story in the book, long story short, the whole time I was like, my dream is to work in television. The president of NBC is on this plane. And I kept chickening out. I was going to go talk to him. Finally, about an hour before we were going to land, I went up and I said, can I talk to you, Mr. Tinker? I just interned at NBC last summer and blah, blah, blah. And he could have just said, no, I'm too busy. But he got up from his aisle seat, moved over to the window and said, have a seat. So what does that say about a leader, a CEO of a company who is willing to do that to some unknown kid on a plane, right? Yeah, so, instead and, of just he, hitting
1: the, uh, yeah. the uh, flight attendant button, hello. Yeah, they, hello.
0: <laughs> instead of having me wrestle to the ground and thrown <laughs> off the plane, right? But two things. That's one, great. One is, uh, two, two aspects of that. One is the fact that he actually welcomed me and moved over and gave me a seat. That was symbolic and had a lot of meaning, but he was the first one who ever, I ever heard the concept of servant leadership um, from because he said to me my job is the ceo i report to everyone else in the company i'm the lowest person on the totem pole because my job is to make my direct reports successful and so on down the road so if i'm not if the if the lowest person on the org chart is not successful then i failed so i flip it up so that was the first time i ever so that was a long time. that was in 1986 when i moved out when that incident happened i'll never forget it so few lessons there one servant leadership two the the humbleness of uh, the humility of someone doing something like that, a CEO of a huge company and helping the next generation. Um, And three, the fact that even though I was an extreme introvert and very shy, the fact that I forced myself to do it rather than regretting it years later, because think about the things that you could have done and you regretted. So that was a reminder to me that, you know, worst thing that would have happened, Dale Carnegie, one of his principles is think about what's the worst that could happen and how bad would that actually be worst thing he said i get sent back to my seat and but look what did happen i have a story that i'm still telling you know 30 something years later
1: yeah, and you got that lesson and you got that view from him and what a great thing for you as you're kind of, you know, moving from humanities and literature into your career and your job and saying, yeah. hey, you know what? There can be humanity in this. There can be yeah. leaders who care and actually see this as an impact on people instead of just a, hey, some dollars and let me kind of climb, you know, claw my way to the top over other people.
0: Yeah, yeah. And in fact, even as you were talking, you know, the word onboarding is a metaphor, right? That's like we're getting on board a plane, getting on uh-huh. board a ship. You're, getting, you're not really literally getting on board the company company, but that's the word that we use, right? Because it's a metaphor of how do we get people on, you know, on, on the company. Another word that comes to mind is I was just guest speaking at Fordham University in the real estate graduate program uh, a month ago. And I was, we're talking about the integrity, right? You talk, you, you do a lot of work around integrity and they framed it in two ways. One, as a real estate agent, you need to have integrity in terms of your character. What does that mean? And the word integrity, like the word integer is about being whole, complete, um, you know, fulfilling um, consistent, solid, stable. But we also talk about a building needing to have integrity, right? Someone may say, "What is, does this integrity? Is there found? Is the foundation? Does the foundation have integrity?" So we talked about how the whole conversation about what here's the word integrity being used in the context of your integrity as a person and the integrity of a building, and by ta- having that conversation, it solidified both meanings in people's minds. So integrity is both a metaphor, but it also has meaning in terms of what does it mean to act with integrity as a real estate agent. So that was just one example that you know relates to what the business that you're in is. Yeah. A word like that could have multiple meanings, but it's the metaphor of the solid foundation as a person that will come through in your words and actions and behaviors and, and how you treat people.
1: Yeah, that's a, I love how you bring that to life, Todd, because, you know, people throw that word around. A lot of people have it on their values on the yeah. wall. And if you don't use visual leadership to communicate this to people and say, hey, here's what integrity means in our industry as a real estate agent, or here's yeah. what integrity means at our company, then people just say, okay, you're telling me not to steal anything great, you know, something else that I can't do. Um, but to your point, integrity is that that integration, that wholeness. And we as leaders can invite people to, you know, Again, flip that lens around and say, "Okay, well, well, what matters to you, and how how does this workplace enable that uh, rather than take things from you?" Um, And then, you know, I think the other piece that you bring with that foundation is there's a piece of integrity that's strength, right? When you have that wholeness, it's not kind of shifting at you know on shifting sands or something like that. You're, uh, you know, there's there's strength in saying, you know what this is who I am, this is my whole person, I can bring it to my company here, my mission and the things I care about in life fit with this company and the impact that they're trying to have on the world. And their strength in that, right, that oneness uh, creates strength. And it's not this thing of, oh, I'm going to get in trouble for something. But it's, hey, we're united. and, And we're all going in the same direction. And we can, you know, we can all be better when we're together.
0: Yeah, it's all those, it's strength, it's consistency, it's authenticity, it's credibility, it's all of those things together. A big word that comes to mind that we often talk about in our classes is trust. We spend a lot of time just talking about what do we mean by trust? What does it mean to be trustworthy? How do you know? know, Trust and truth have the same Latin root to them. Sure. That's another way my English literature background comes in. I am obsessed with uh, Latin, the uh, word origins. Yeah, you're a big big etymologist, huh? Yeah, uh, 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 not to be confused with entomology, which (laughs) is the study of bugs. (laughs) Um, but uh, study of word origins. So you know, for example, um, you know, if, you, if you look up a word like integrity and you see, then you can have a conversation about it. Authenticity, um, you know, credibility has to do with you know, trustworthiness. So fidelity, uh, fiduciary, those all, again, those all have to do with trust, truth, trustworthiness. Is your word, is there consistency between what you say and what you do? What, what does it say as a leader when you say one thing and do another? Um, the other day here in New York, we went into a store, six police officers were getting food at a deli, four were not wearing masks, right? So how are they enforcing? what are they modeling there? They're here, they are enforcing and telling other people to wear a mask, and yet four out of the six in there weren't. So I said to the lead, the sergeant, he was wearing a white shirt, all the others were in blue shirts. I said, so I guess the mask policy doesn't apply to police officers. He's like, Yeah, I'm sorry. I need to talk to them. So he like he knew. Right. So it's like, yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, we don't want to do it. But what do you what message are you sending if as a leader you are not modeling the behaviors you expect everyone else to comply with? Right. So that regardless of the business, that's you know, that's a real visual example of, you know, how this plays out in real life.
1: Yeah, and you know that that credibility and that trust, you know, it kind of comes. You know, uh, credibility I think is rooted in credo, yes. um, and you know, when you have a creed and you say, "Hey, these are the things that matter to me," then people see you treat the you know, the wait staff that way and treat the boss that way and treat your kids that way. And they say, okay, I know who this person is. They have integrity. They, they, they abide by these things that those things are true. And there's so much about this, this human element of human resources or leadership or whatever you're doing that, that authenticity, that builds trust. And then, and then we can get our work done together instead of looking over our shoulders and wondering, hey, uh, is this person gonna be someone else when you know, their mask isn't on?
0: Yeah, yeah. And another transition from that police story is if you th- think about HR policies, right? The word policy is the same as police, right? It's about administration, okay. right? So a lot of HR people are like, oh, I'm tired of being, you know to you know, you go to the party, it's like, oh, stop, watch what you're saying, HR's in the room, right? Okay. Right? We hate that feeling as HR professionals to, sure. to hear that. But if you're seen as the company police, and, and the only time people ever hear from you or see you is, you, is when you're putting out a new policy, right? Mm-hmm. You're, that's how you're seen. So HR people say, we want to be seen as strategic partners. We want to be seen as integral to the to the company. We want to see that at the table. That metaphor is always used, right? Uh-huh. Um, but how do you do that and change the perception of HR if you're just seen as the company police? So it's like, you yeah. really think about that. Um, when we're creating policies, are we listening to people and how they're going to feel about it, or we just come down with the new rules and say, here's what we're following starting next Monday, right? So exactly. these are all topics that, that very often come up in the conversation.
1: Yeah, I love that you're so in tune with it, Todd. I mean, those are things that we're talking about. I think that's gonna be the transition from what we call compliance 2.0 to 3.0, yeah. 2.0 being just, hey, let's have a program in place. Let's have some ROI. Let's, have, you know, let's police and have policies to, well, what's really effective? It's having HR and compliance and ethics as a strategic lever in the organization that says, hey, here's how we tie all of this together. Yeah. Here's how we get everyone on board for the mission and the vision that our leadership has and what the world needs from you know, our team, our tribe, our company.
0: Exactly. Um,
1: So I'd love to talk about that a little bit more. I think um, there's a lot uh, about what you talk about here in visual leadership. Obviously, this can apply to an executive or a board member or the leader of a nonprofit. Um, But for ethics experts, um, I'd love to talk about some of the ways that your methods and the ways that you've seen to effectively communicate and, you know, kind of build, you know, cross-functional or cross-team integrity um, can help us to kind of get that seat at the table, right? So you said this thing that, um, you know, Part of part of what you're doing is uh, we need to figure out how to get our ideas into their heads, and I imagine a lot of people in you know ethics and integrity departments and uh, compliance and HR they're thinking that all the time, well, you know this this other team doesn't get how important this is, um, so I really love the line. What do you think that people don't get it about? That kind of exchange and that influence, that visual leadership helps them solve. Is it about their intention, their approach, or you know, what do you think they're missing that, that you can help us with?
0: Yeah, one of the exercises we do in my NYU class mid semester is we, as HR students, we have them come up with what, make a list on a flip chart or a whiteboard. What, make a list of all the HR jargon, acronyms, terminology you could think of, and they come up with like a hundred different things, right? H uh-huh. R I S and you know LTMs and you know whatever it is, right? And then we say, all right. If you are in finance, technology, marketing, you know, go down a list of other functions in the companies, would they have any idea what you were talking about? Probably okay. not. So it's literally like you're speaking Chinese, someone else is speaking Spanish, someone else is speaking German, right? So like, yeah. you're just not speaking the same language. Then we say, what are the ter- what's the terminology that marketing uses? What's the terminology that you know finance uses and then we say how do we translate just like you would put something into google translate how do you trans- translate hr speak or compliance speak into the language of the business right okay. so here's an example let's say you were a selling new you are management consultant and you're trying to sell to a doctor head of a doctor's office right you might use terminology like we're going to come into your organization and we are going to diagnose the root cause of some of your issues to find out we'll come up with a cure and prescribe some solutions. So right Yeah, there, get a
1: healthier culture.
0: Right, exactly right. So you're using the do, the language of the medical profession so you're translating your speak into the doctor's speak and then the, the other person's thinking, "Oh, they get me. They know what I'm talking about. He speaks my language or she speaks my language." So we just the words we use, the examples we use, the metaphors, the stories we tell, we need to start with With any communication, we need to start with who's our audience and what's our purpose, right? What are you trying, and I always go down the who, what, when, where, why, and how. Who are you talking to? What are you talking to them about? When and where are you talking to them? Why are you talking to them? And what are you trying to accomplish? That's the start with why, the Simon Sinek approach. Sure, sure. And that will all determine the how. So your how, your strategy, your approach will be determined on, but if you just wing it, you may or may not hit the target. It's like throwing darts at the dartboard, but if you think strategically about who's my audience, what's my purpose, and what's my desired outcome, what do I want them to think, know, feel, and ultimately do at the end of this conversation? If we do that, whether you're giving a TED Talk, a speech on the stage, or having a one-on-one conversation, what do you want them to think, feel, know, and do, that will help you to construct your conversation. I talk about that with a few different uh, models and examples in my book, but that's the foundation of what we're talking about. Then people will say, "Oh, I see what you're saying," or "You get me." Not only do I see what you're saying, but you see what I'm saying. You get yeah. me, right? Yeah. And I think that's what, what forms the the commonality and the connection.
1: Yeah, it really does. I mean, there's so much about that, as you know, as we might say, as leaders. Oh, you know, IT doesn't get me, or you know, this team, you know, is is not cooperating on this initiative that we have to roll out. Well, when they can see. You know, if IT can say, you know what, compliance gets me, or when marketing can say, yeah. hey, you know what, HR kind of sees what I care about, and you know, we're we're kind of the same actually. Like they, like we're speaking the same language. Exactly. Or you know, what is it like when someone quotes your favorite line for a movie? You're like, uh, oh, you too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that one too. Yeah, it's like um, we connected
0: yeah. over all these books, right? Covey, Dale Carnegie. It's like right. we, right? And even today, preparing for today. I know I'm talking to you know, the ethics, ex, ethics experts and compliance line. If I was talking to someone else, I'd be using completely different examples, completely different metaphors, talking about different chapters from the book, right? So I was thinking about who am I talking to? What does Giovanni care about? And what does your audience care about? That's my focus today. With a different audience on a different podcast, I'd be talking about similar things related to the theme of visual leadership, but very different examples and references.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, you're clearly expert at it. And cause, uh, you know, I, I think you've, you've been hitting all, all the right notes and I'm, I'm just so excited to keep digging the, into this with you. So I'd like to talk about, you know, this from a couple different angles. Um, as as we as uh, ethics experts are seeking to influence and uh, lead and uh, get cooperation and collaboration with other people around the organization, I'd like to talk about it in two different um, angles. Kind of one going to senior leaders, and the other kind of communicating things out to all employees. So on that senior leader point, a lot of eth- ethics experts they're waking up to the power of better communication, mm-hmm. of alignment and persuasion. Um, you know, this is really visual leadership in thinking and communicating. Um, So how can they leverage this idea to make, you know, things like legal and regulatory and executive, very pragmatic types of people, um, these types of colleagues, how can they influence them with these ideas without coming across as unserious? Or, you know, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm I'm just kind of speaking in a bunch of different metaphors that you don't get.
0: Yeah. Well, again, that's the key thing. If Going back to Covey, begin with the end in mind, right? So it's like you start, with, you start with the end. What am I trying to achieve? Who am I talking to and about what? And you may say, you know, what's appropriate? What are people? People have different learning styles. I'm gonna, I don't want to get controversial. There's a whole controversy in the learning business, but there's not that people have different learning styles. We all have all four, but I don't know if you've ever heard the term VARK, V-A-R-K, visual, auditory, reading re- and writing, and kinesthetic, right? Yes. Okay, so, yeah. You could use a visual. I could show you something. Auditory, I'll tell you something. Reading and writing, I'll have you read something. And kinesthetic, I'll have you do something, right? Uh We all learn in different ways at different times, depending on what it is. So real life example, if you were going to put together a piece of Ikea furniture, right? A visual person will want to look at the diagram, maybe lay out all the pieces and see and visualize in their mind's eye, how is this going to fit together. An auditory person may say, explain it to me. They may want to listen to someone tell them, explain to me what I'm supposed to do. Read and write may want to look, go online and read the manual, read the word-by-word instructions. And a kinesthetic person will probably dump all the pieces on and just start putting it together, right? So you need to think about how do people like to absorb information and how do you like to do it? Real life example, years ago, I designed a Leadership Institute for my company. I needed to present it to our CEO so I went to my boss because I had never met one-on-one with the CEO before. I was terrified, nervous. I was like, what's the best way to present to him? And he said this. He said, he does not, do not overload him with details. He's a big picture guy. Do not give him a manual. Do not give him an Excel spreadsheet. Show him a picture. Give him a diagram. Show it to him and know that he is going to hand it back to you when you leave he's not going to take it he doesn't like paper in his office so knowing those things i was able to customize if i had walked in with a with a gigantic excel you know 20 pages of excel excel spreadsheet data he would have kicked me out of his office right or if i gave him a 500 page manual to read like some people want that right some people say to me i'm a reader right i would say leave it with me let me read it on my own and then let's talk about it i don't like things just dumped on me. Right. So right. think about your own style. Think about you know, the challenges when you have a diverse audience. How do I hit all those different types of people? Right. Yeah. So you have to just, you know, like humor is appropriate in some situations, not in others. If you're, if you're talking about the fact that, you know, sales are down, we're gonna have to lay off 25% of our workforce. That's not the time to use humor. And one thing about humor, I just wanted to mention, we're not talking about jokes. We're not talking about two guys walked into a bar that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. I'm talking about humor's anecdotes. Like if I tell people about. We're talking about managers, I tell you, let me tell you about the worst boss I ever had in my life. I was sitting at my desk at a a TV network out in LA, I won't say which one, but it had a C, a B, and an S in its name. Um, and I was sitting, <laughs> well, <laughs> if you could figure it out, I'm not taking responsibility. Um, yeah. but anyways, I'm sitting there and my boss's office door flings open and I feel something whipped by my head. And she threw a box of pens at me because they were the wrong ones. She wanted the fine point. These were the medium point. How started, dare you, Todd? And she starts screaming at me like a lunatic in front of all my peers. And again, she had two other boxes in her office. It wasn't like it was an emergency yet. So I say to my students, you know, we're talking about feedback. I don't know. If you were the boss, was there any other possible way that you could think of of giving your employee the feedback that they may <laughs> have offered the wrong, ordered the wrong office supplies? Yeah. Um, any, right?
1: Anything? Anything? Any, any other no, options?
0: No, I'm stumped. That's pretty much all I could think of. <laughs> so, but just that story resonates. First of all, it creates empathy. It's like, oh, people – it resonates with people. Can you imagine being in my shoes at age 30 and having your boss throw a box of pens at your head? Your boss who was only six months older than you. It wasn't like even some like, you know? Um, so again, that story, people never forget it. It's emotional. It resonates. And it's like, now let me ask you, Giovanni, tell me about the worst boss you ever had. Right. So, and then we'll have a conversation. So that's an example. And then we're both
1: talking about the same thing now. We all have our stories and this is a little bit funny and we can laugh about it and all that.
0: Exactly. And that's another thing. It's funny now in retrospect, it was not very funny at the time. I mean, I was terrified and terrorized by this boss. I actually kept an abuse log. I talk about it in my book. Um, but, Yeah, that's how people connect with stories. So there's humor in there, but there's also a lesson, and it's memorable. So you have to decide when it's appropriate to use humor and storytelling and when not. A good metaphor can hit the target and resonate with people. A bad metaphor can confuse people, or maybe seen as being manipulative or off the track. So it really is about being more consciously aware of how I could use these four different methods, and being strategic and purposeful, and again, you're not always going to hit the target metaphor, but you know you try your best to to communicate in the way that you think will have the best outcome.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, that's great. And you know, I'm, you know, you telling that story, maybe that night you weren't joking about it, but you know, humor has this tension and this surprise, yeah. and usually some pain in it. Um, and you know, when you're telling it in retrospect to illustrate something, then we know that you're comfortable talking about it and you're, you know, you know, the way that you present it kind of invites us all to be like, okay, well, we can laugh about that. Clearly you recovered from it. You're very successful and all of that. Um, that's very different from, Hey, let me tell you, you know, I, I just saw someone get victimized and yeah. that's not funny.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And also when you, when you're, when you use yourself self-deprecating humor, you're allowed, you're entitled, you've earned the right to tell that story because it happened to you. Sometimes, real life story, I was doing consulting at a company where they would, we had different tra- trainers um, and the client at the back of the room, um, this woman, Jane, was presenting and the woman said to Jane afterwards, she's like, you didn't tell that, when you did this piece, you didn't tell that story that Todd always tells. And Jane said, well, that's Todd's story that actually happened to him. It wasn't that story, it was a different one. And the, and the client said, I know, but I really like that story. It's very effective. I'd like you to tell it. And Jane was put in an awkward position in terms of her credibility. Do I say this is, my colleague's story? Do I tell it as if it happened to me? All of a sudden, she was put in a really awkward position where her credibility was on the line. Do I, so right there, what would you do in that situation? Here, a client is asking you, almost telling you that they want you to do something, but you feel it's not the right thing to do for your own personal reasons, right? What, how would you respond if you were Jane? What, what would you say?
1: Uh, so I don't know if this is the right answer. I wish you would have planted this so I could really ace it. Uh, (laughs) No, I mean, I think, you know, if they were really pressing on it, I would tell a toned down version of the story and say, you know, I would not try to land it the way that you landed and say, Hey, let's all laugh about Todd, but Oh yeah. Well, the story is Todd tells this story about how a leader really victimized him. And he makes the point that, Hey, is there some other way that we could do that? And I would probably kind of do that without, you know, the visceral of like, you know, kind of, when you tell it, you can have that detail and you can express that pain. Exactly. I need to express maybe some more empathy in telling yeah, the story. Yeah,
0: because if someone asks a follow-up question, say, oh, what did you do next? All of a sudden you're put in the position of a liar, right? Yeah. Real life story, I was watching, I went to see a speaker, an author years ago who I was a big fan of. He told the story and he said, this, this happened to me just last week, blah, 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 blah. Told this great story. I went to see him five years later in a different, <laughs> I saw him once in New York and then in LA, tells the story this really happened to me, just happened to me last week, all of a sudden, what happened to his credibility in my eyes, right? Yep. All he had to say was, this once this happened to me and he'd be fine. As soon as he said, true story, this just happened to me last week, whether it was five years ago, and who knows, it could have been 10 years before that, but all of a sudden, my respect for this person, one of my models in my book is the hierarchy of followership. It goes like, admire, respect, and trust. So picture a pyramid, like, admire, respect, trust. And I say, how important is it to like someone to respect, um, admire them, respect them, and trust them. And can you like someone you don't trust? Can you trust someone you don't like? So I play around with this whole concept in terms of leadership and followership, is you know, how likely, I think it's more important, you know, the outcome is it's more important to trust. that You know, you could trust someone if, if, so, if you believe the person, they feel they're doing something for the good of the company and for the right reasons and not for themselves. Um, you could say, I don't love this person, but I trust them, that they're doing the right thing for the right reasons. Yeah. Or you could say, I really like this person, but I wouldn't lend them five bucks and expect to ever see it again, right? So,
1: sure.
0: so it's really interesting to think about how we all would like to be liked, admired, respected, and trusted, but it's interesting when they play one against the other and I go into a whole discussion and exploration around that. Because again, trust is key to you know, everything, whether it's, com- if you're trying to get compliance, if you're trying to have integrity, everything that you're always talking about, trust to me is one of the foundations.
1: Yeah, it definitely is. And to your point, you know, that hierarchy, there are times where you can skip over one or you don't have one. But again, to your earlier point, when you have this mental model, then you say, okay, well, there are exceptions to the rule, right? Maybe someone doesn't like you, but they admire, respect, and trust you or something like that. Um, so it doesn't always have to fit that to be relevant in our communication.
0: Exactly, right? exactly.
1: Um, so this is, this is great, Todd. So um, uh, I, I'd love to hear your perspective on this. Ethics experts, they're increasingly called upon to step up to lead. We are seeing it during this pandemic of the people who had a great compliance program who had, you know, their, their HR kind of uh, organization was on point they reacted well to great care of their employees, and it was maybe not as bad right so we're called that we're called on to step up to lead um, that requires vision and I think you'd require I think you'd say that it requires visual leadership. Um, how can people who maybe have not been invited into this conversation before, who have you know, not really, they haven't read a thousand books this year yet, okay. um, how can they kind of get up this learning curve after you know, maybe not having much experience with that before?
0: Yeah, see, you know, be more aware of, here's the thing, look at the world, one of my favorite quotes is Marcel Proust. Um, he said, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new lands, but in seeing with new eyes, right? Yeah, I love it. So that quote is all about what are you seeing? It relates to the iceberg metaphor we talked about before. What are you seeing? What are you not seeing? What are you noticing? What are you not noticing? What are you listening to? What are you not hearing, right? Yeah. So I think that's the, one of the ways to think about it visually uh-huh. and. Um, and what's interesting, the first two types I mentioned are seen through the physical eye. When you're looking at models and, and pictures, that's physical okay. eye. The metaphors and storytelling come through the ear. That could be auditory, right? So, or you can use them in any combination. I think that's the key thing is to listen better and to see better. Notice things, look for things that you haven't seen before. Talk to people you haven't talked to before. Ask, value ever- everyone's opinion i always talk about threes in my classes and my workshops visibility voice and value okay are you seen and how are you seen are you heard and how are you heard and are you recognized and appreciated for your contributions okay one of of the ways i talk about this let's say you're on a zoom call but you choose to have your camera off and your mic off and you never speak and you never participate in the chat it's like if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, you know, yes. they make a sound. If you were on a zoom call and didn't contribute in any way and weren't seen or heard, did it matter that you were there? You could have just watched it on the recording. Right. Sure. So I say to people, if you want to be seen as a thought leader, an influencer, a subject matter expert, you need to be seen, heard, and, and contribute. Right. So turn your camera on when appropriate, of course, turn your yeah. camera, make comments in the chat box. Cause you'll say people will look or comment on LinkedIn. Right. I'm a big, I live on LinkedIn. I'm yeah, sure you're great you on there, well. man.
1: You do great stuff. Thanks, Everyone thanks. should follow Todd on LinkedIn.
0: Yes, feel free to do that. But again, I, you know, and again, it's not all about you. You do benefit from visibility when you are commenting. And people are like, oh, who is this guy? He always makes good comments, right? Um, but that's the thing. It's like you're helping other people and you're being generous by liking and sharing. If you post something and you get no responses, no reactions, you know, it doesn't feel good so it's like why not help other people feel good why not say hey great post or hey enjoyed the video or just you know click the like button or the heart button and if you think about it those are symbols that's visual communication a thumbs up is a visual a heart is a visual the caring thing the hug that is on facebook right now so if you think about it Visual communication goes back to the cavemen 40,000 years ago when they were drawing pictures on a cave wall of a bison, a fire, and someone with a, you know, a spear chasing after it, right? That's yeah. visual communication that existed possibly even before a language. Egyptian hieroglyphics, the first written language, was pictograms originally, right? There were pictures that morphed into alpha- the alphabet. Right. Um, so emojis and emoticons are like the current version, the modern version of caveman drawings, right? Where yeah. You
1: and you can't assemble. stop them because it's, yeah. just, it's just human.
0: And there's no reason to stop it, right? It's like that's, I've seen people write a whole blog post just using emojis, right? Yeah, so you could cool. tell a story. So also, here's the thing just like any communication could be misused. You have to be careful, right? Someone posted about the passing of their grandmother and someone clicked the, the laugh button instead of the tear button just by mistake, right? An innocent mistake, you give the person the benefit of the doubt in terms of their intention, but what's your first impression of that, right? Of that person, the impact. Then the person apologized profusely, but it's already out of the bag, right? It already happened. So again, even accidents like that, just like you know, they're saying that a nanosecond is the quickest unit, unit of time, but faster than that is an onosecond, second, which is the time between when you do something and say, oh no, I can't believe I did that. <laughs> so just keep, don't let that onosecond second thing happen to you. All right,
1: yeah, we'll watch out for that. But yeah, I mean, those are great points. You know, I think that that's something that as we step up into leadership roles, whether you're kind of frontline individual contributor to manager, to director, you're asked to take on these new things and there's that type of thing happening with HR and with ethics and with integrity that, okay, well, we want to see it at the table. We have good ideas, but there's a different type of interaction there. And there's something that we need to learn how to do to take that on. And you make some great points that we need to see with new eyes. I love the Bruce uh, quote. And I love, uh, you know, how you talk about, you know, are you seen, you know, are, are you heard, uh, you know, are you re- respected and recognized for your impact? Those are all things that maybe, you know, when you were just kind of at your desk and just had to get the task done, Uh, Those weren't really demanded of you, not they weren't as important to success. But in this new role that we're going to step up to and level into in Compliance 3.0, that's going to be required of us. And we start, we got to start getting some agency and some practice with that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Here's a real life example of that from my own career. Years ago, I was hired as the COO of a vice president of operations for a small executive search firm. The CEO wanted to be more strategic and, and not get involved in the day to day. Yet yeah, she was another lunatic boss anyway. Once I keep <laughs> going back to pens, uh, someone asked me to order these markers or pens. I did, they were like, I don't know, $8. And my boss ripped me apart because I didn't have her authorization. I was like, You hired me as the vice president of operations at a six figure salary, and yet I'm not authorized to say yes to a box of magic markers and uh, you're
1: the one who doesn't want to get involved in day-to-day yeah yeah.
0: yeah one time <laughs> one time one week my assistant worked like 80 hours and he had a family member in town and he said can i leave a little or can i leave at four on friday i said you know what come leave at noon you know take you know just get every as long as everything's done leave at noon spend the time with your family you put in a lot of hours again my b- boss ripped me apart for not asking her if that was okay so again that's about empowerment accountability um but There's a reason I mentioned that story, and it was. uh, Wait, what what was the last question you just asked me? Because it was related. Uh, It was just
1: about we got to step up and we got to learn how to be this new role that we weren't before.
0: Yeah, yeah. So basically, she couldn't give up her. She couldn't empower. And if you think about empowerment, the root word of empowerment is power, right? In order to empower other people, you need to voluntarily be willing to give up some of your power. And so many leaders, managers, bosses are unwilling to do that because if you don't have complete control of everything, it could be done wrong. But you need to empower people, you need to hold them accountable for results. Oh, and the, see, if I kept talking long enough, I figure I'd get back to that story. People would come to me with their problems, I would solve them. At the end of the week, she would say to me, Did you get anything done this week? And I said, yeah, I got done like a hundred different things. She's like, well, all I do is see you sitting at your desk. I don't see you doing anything. Like, what are you actually doing? So what I started doing was documenting everything that came in and everything I resolved and I'd send it to her on Friday. If you don't document it, it literally didn't happen. So that's with like warnings for poor performance on a performance plan or it's, so I started making a habit for the rest of my career. Whenever I was working at companies, I would send my boss, whether they asked for it or not whether they read it or not a weekly status report of here's what i plan to do here's what i got done here's what i'm doing next week and at least they can they'll i never want anyone to say to me again i don't know what you do around here because yeah. i was so insulting because i thought i was making her life easier by not even getting her involved in these things
1: yeah you're practically she, doing her job
0: yeah so i learned the hard way because um but uh, that's that. i would recommend that to people even for your own self even if you don't have a boss even if you're the ceo document. It's a great way to look back and say, hey, did I focus on the right things, right? You Mm -hmm. could get things done, but was it where I needed to spend my attention? You know, prioritizing is a key thing. Um, was I proactive? Did I, did I do anticipate what might be coming up the road or did I just check the box? You know, it's the whole importance urgency matrix. If we're familiar with that from Covey's seven habits, originally created by president Eisenhower as the Eisenhower matrix, but are you focusing on the urgent or the important? And you can realize that, Hey, I was putting out fires all week, but I wasn't doing any fire prevention to use a metaphor. So I think just thinking about where we're spending our time is so key to being an effective manager and leader.
1: Yeah, it really is, and you know, I uh, I see a lot of people um, on Twitter and LinkedIn in the HR space talking about how terrible micromanagers are. And you know, it's one thing to say, you know, this thing should be different. It's another thing to say, okay, well, I'm going to help change that from the position that I'm in, right? It's great to say as an HR or ethics leader, I want to be invited to that table. It's another thing to say, I'm going to figure out what I can do to influence and communicate. You know, and you were making the case and you were communicating all that time when you said, here's what I did. So then, you know. At at some point, hopefully, if someone like has ears and eyes and a brain, they're going to say, OK, well, Todd's doing tons of stuff. I don't even have to read that thing because right. he's doing it. I'll go look somewhere else for a problem.
0: Or well, um, they could say, I- why do you spend all this time on this when what I really needed to do was this? And one of the sure. things I talk about in my book is that people are not mind readers. Right. If you say you should have done that or why didn't you just do that? You know, again, people don't know. So it's like your boss is to communicate. Um, one of the stories I tell in my book called Ice, Rice, or Mice, Has This Ever Happened to You? I was in a restaurant, and I said, can I have some more ice for my yeah. Diet Coke? They brought me a bowl of white rice, right? I said ice, they heard rice. So I say, whose fault was that, mine or the waiter's? And it really was my fault, right? The burden of communication. I've, now, if I had said, you know, can I have some more ice and pointed to my glass, they would have known because you're using a visual and, a, and body language to express, right? But yeah. if, if someone mishears you, um, it's your fault because you didn't communicate it well. So you need to close the feedback loop, maybe have them, you know, if you a meet a verbal meeting with someone, send them an email saying, hey, based on our conversation, this is my understanding and this is what I'm going to do. Give yeah, them a chance to say, yeah, give them a chance to say, yes, that's great. Sounds great. Or it's a chance to say, no, that's not what I meant at all. Who's doing what by when is one of my catchphrases. Always at the end of every conversation, if you say who's doing what by when, if I go shopping with my wife at the supermarket, who's doing what by when? Who is me or you? is doing what, getting the milk, getting the bread, getting the cold cuts, and by when, I'll meet you at the cash register in 20 minutes. Everything's synchronized. But if you just split up in the supermarket and you don't know yeah. who's doing what, what's the odds? You odd... both
1: show up with milk?
0: Yeah, you, or, or you never find, see each other again. If you're in one of those <laughs> big, gigantic... Uh, you know, in New York, we have those little t- tiny bodegas. We could find yeah. each other in a minute, but if you're in a gigantic... Yeah, you go to
1: Italy, stop... you'll never find each other. No,
0: no, if you're in, yeah, if you're in Connecticut in the, in the stop-and-shop or whatever, or, or worse, in like a, you know, a Target or a... Uh, you know, at Costco, you're never going to find, you'll see each other maybe at closing time if you're lucky. So But at the end of every conversation, at every meeting, if you have who's doing what by when, you will eliminate so much mis, you know, misunderstanding, confusion, you'll be in alignment. So there's all those little tips like that that are just personal productivity. But as a manager, if you drive that in your organization and model it, that's the important thing. If you tell people to do it, but you don't do it yourself, it's just not going to get done. So as a, as a leader, you really need to think, put, look at yourself. Again, flip the eye, look at yourself in the mirror and saying, am I doing, am I modeling what am I, I'm asking other people to do?
1: Yeah, that's a great challenge to us. And, you know, I think that takes on a very different tone. It, it would be one thing if your boss told you, I want to see everything that you spend more than a minute on this week. Mm-hmm. It's a very different thing for you to be proactive and say, hey, well, here's what I've been working on. I'd love your feedback. Or I just want you to know what I'm doing. Or, you know, I just, uh, you know, I want to help you through this. It opens up a different conversation. And I think there's a parallel for us as HR and integrity leaders to say, hey, uh, executive, hey, board, you know, I know you asked for these stats and the RI on this thing. Here's some other stuff. Stuff that we're doing, yeah. and here I just want you to know, kind of, you're going to see these results show up some other places. I want you to know that you know we kind of we beat our goals on our strategy for this year and stuff like that. It starts to feel a lot different than just kind of scrambling to uh, you know report some stats that are demanded of you. Um, and I think that that's how we kind of get that seat at the table, and that's one way with, that we can use the things that you've shared with us today um, to really uh, make a better impact on the world by first making a better impact on you know, the executive leaders and our organization.
0: Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned the word proactive. Uh, it's so important. Stephen Covey's habit number one of seven habits is be proactive, right? So it's two simple words, but so powerful. What does it mean to be proactive instead of uh, reactive? I created a model called the five levels of proactivity that's in my book. You could be inactive, meaning you don't do anything, hope it goes away by itself, which it usually doesn't. You can be reactive, which is fine. Something happens, you respond, which is fine. Active is you're you're responding in real time. So reactive is very often a time lag, like I'll get back to you Uh in a few days. Active is like it happens, you respond. It happens, you respond. Proactive is you're a step ahead. You're anticipating, you're thinking a step ahead. So if something happens, you're ready to to um in fact you think a step ahead like if i say oh giovanni i sent you you know like you send me the list of some of the things we'll talk about today that was proactive because then i was able to say it instead of being being sur- you know a surprise being thrown at me i got you, you took that action without my thinking about it Say, what might todd need what might he be thinking what will help set him up for success my yeah. boss jeff schwartzman from my previous job my colleague i teach with him at nyu one of his things he always says is, as a leader, you have your number one job is to set your people up for success, whatever that yeah. takes. And I coined the, two, the words R&R, not um, rest and relaxation, but resources and roadblocks. Your job is to give people the resources they need, whether it's uh-huh. human resources, time, Financial technology and roadblocks. What can you do as a manager slash leader to remove the ar- obstacles and barriers that stand in the way of your people? If you could do yeah. that, if you don't do that, if you don't give people what they need and use your power and influence and your role and position to clear the way for people, that's like you know, in the football field. If the if you're you know expecting a quarterback or a running backs to run with if no one's blocking for you, right? So yeah. your job is sometimes as a manager is to block, is to clear a path so that the person you hand the ball to can run through it. If you don't give them the ball and you don't clear the path, you're not getting anywhere, right? So right. using that football metaphor, which again, I wouldn't use with people. And I just did a podcast with a guy in, in London last week. We were talking more about soccer slash football, European yeah. football. Then if you're the striker, you got to draw some people away
1: to open up the path and then pass it to someone else so they can take a shot and goal, right? Yeah,
0: using a a cricket or rugby analogy is not going to fly. So, again, you need to – he tried to use – to his credit, he tried to use some baseball metaphors to make that – Okay. So, we found some commonalities between cricket and baseball until he said, you know, the baseball batsman. And I was like, uh, I don't think so. But, again (laughs) – but if you, again, if you speak the language of your audience, of your listener, of your, the person you're talking to, you, again, you bond, you, you, you say, this person gets me, we're speaking the same language. Or there's nothing wrong with saying, that's kind of like this, then it's a metaphor. So if I'm talking baseball, he's talking critic, cricket, and we say, oh, that's kind of like this. I once taught a workshop called Management by Baseball, where we talked about what from baseball can we apply to business, and what lessons from business can we apply to baseball. Mm-hmm. And we had a number of people from Europe and India and Pakistan in the, in the group, and I said, well, you know. they said you know i want to understand baseball because it's so it's referenced all the time we use baseball analogies he's like i just want to learn to understand so that because they were not baseball fans necessarily but they they enjoyed um there's an author a french author years ago who said to really understand america you need to understand baseball so he wrote that like back in like the 1940s or 50s yeah Again, it's the speaking the language of your stakeholders, right? I mean, that's, you need to think about, again, putting yourself in their shoes and seeing things through their eyes and saying, what's going to help them see what I'm saying and what's going to help me get them to see what, you know, and vice versa. So.
1: Yeah, it's great. I mean, you've brought us back to some things that we started talking about and, you know, Todd, you have the integrity, this, all, this stuff wraps together, right? We were talking about proactivity um, and you, know, you, you brought it to you know, when we're talking about baseball or cricket or whatever it is, you're, you start by kind of speaking their language, right? And they say, okay, I understand what you're saying. You do that communication through visual leadership, but you also start building those levels from like to trust because they say, hey, I understand this person. I, you know, I can relate to them. I respect them. And uh, you can move up that ladder. Um, and you know you you, all, you also touched on the uh, the servant leadership that we kind of opened with uh, about how what we the, our number one uh, charge or the number one responsibility that we have as leaders um, and you know this also applies if you want to be the leader, you want to be the respected HR leader that the organization looks to to get answers and things like that is to set your people up for success and you can be You know, you can be setting your executive team and your board up for success or your kind of cross-functional leader of IT um, or obviously, you know, your your team or your employees. But if we want to lead, we can lead and influence in all directions. Um, And you've given us some great, uh, you know, frameworks and mental models. Um, And again, kind of continuing to put into practice the things that you teach everyone. Um, I think it's really been great. And, um, you know, I just, I'd like to, you know, kind of as we head toward wrapping up, uh, just touch on this thing that, um, you know as you talk about visual leadership, it's hard to not talk about vision, right? We're talking about eyes and we're talking about leadership and we're talking about the vision that a leader has. And you say that vision is seeing the path to a better future um, and seeing that how, how we can make the world a better place. And the future is going to be better than, than how it is today. And you've given us so many ways for how we can, you know, have an impact across these different organizations, these these different kind of departments in our organization. And we can show that the cultural and the stability benefits that the integrity that we as ethics experts bring can really bring our company into a brighter future that's better than where it is today. And I just really want to thank you, Todd. You know, we can, uh, we can wrap up with anything else that you want, um, but I, I just really appreciate the way that you've brought your thoughts and your insight and all of your experience in a way that's communicated very clearly. I think very easy for us to remember and retain um, and take action on um, so that we as ethics experts can start changing the conversation through visual leadership.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Giovanni. It was great. It was really, you know, we, this is our first conversation and we had so much in common and yeah, it's almost like a Venn diagram, right? You're in in the, you're working in one world, I'm working in another. And yet those, that intersection of where both meet, there are so many commonalities. That's what I would say is like, again, using that visual model is try to find the commonalities, the connection with the other person. You don't have to agree on everything. You don't have to do everything the same, but find those points of connections and say, all right, how can we work together ethically to, um, for the greater good and to achieve results. So that we're, again, so we can both win, so we can both be successful. And again, the, the idea of, as a leader, your job is not for you to be the star, but to set your people up for success is one of the most important things to keep in mind. And it's very easy to lose sight of that, but always be thinking about, you know, am I helping, am I doing what I can to, uh, to set my people up for success? Am I seeing things through their view? Um, and in a world of, you know, again, diversity, inclusion, belonging, we're trying to, yeah. Again, not just see things through our lens, because we have a very unique perspective, which is great, and you want to share that with the world, but everyone has the o- um, their own lens. And I love just my last quote, uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, said that everyone you will ever meet knows something you don't right? We've all lived different lives. So I say that to my students because they say in my class, I say one third of the class, one third of our success will be based on my, the content, one third of my teaching, and one third on your contributions. I say, if I leave here at the end of a three-hour class and I haven't learned anything new, then I did it myself a disservice and you guys let me down. So we should all be learning from each other. And a 25-year-old student from Beijing may say, "What do I have to teach my professor?" But teach me your, tell me your story, and I'll learn something. It's that simple. And I, but I have to be willing to listen to it, and and with uh, again non-judgmental, with empathy, compassion, and just say, "What can uh, and find those points of commonality, and and realize that we're all in the same situation, just trying to be successful. And if we could set our people up for success, then uh, then we've done our job as a leader.
1: That's uh, that's a great way um for for you to kind of leave us. Uh, you know, yet another thing to chew on. And I love the idea of that Venn diagram. You know, we talk about diversity, whether it's the IT guy and the HR person, or whether it's, you know, someone of a different race. Well, there are things that are different, but as we engage in, you know, these conversations about diversity and inclusion and justice, you know, yes, we're different. And we can start to build that bridge as leaders and lead to this better world by seeing how we're the same and communicating, you know, using, using visual leadership and using empathy to communicate on those, those things that overlap um and then we can make this world a better place
0: that sounds perfect to me let's do it let's work together to achieve that goal all
1: right that's awesome so todd last thing uh where can we and our audience find you support your book and share this really important and insightful perspective with the world
0: sure i always love threes the rule of three so one connect with me on linkedin i'm the only todd churches c-h-e-r-c-h-e-s my new website just launched literally last week. I haven't even announced it yet, but it's live, toddchurches.com. I also have my company website at BigBlueGumballBot.com, but I'm shifting over to toddchurches.com. And thirdly, my book is available all over the wherever books are sold, uh, amazon.com or anywhere else. So uh, yeah, I look forward to, you know, linking with me, read the book and s- tell me what you think. And uh, I always ask people to let me know what are the top three things that resonate with them. So I'd love to hear from anyone who, uh, who wants to uh, share that with me. That's
1: great. So we'll post this. Please uh, share your comments of the top three things. Uh, I need some time to process this because I got about 45.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we packed a lot into it. Luckily, we both talk fast. So I think we packed about three hours worth into this session.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, it's been great, Todd. Um, it's uh, it's great to hear your story. And you're definitely doing this world a service by helping leaders who care uh, take a hold of these principles and be better leaders so that we, we can make the world a better place. Thank you, Todd. Thanks for joining us on The Ethics Experts.
0: Thank you.